this week uh, we're preaching a sermon on on time. Uh, last week I was traveling in the UK, and I was in Scotland. And one of the things that you uh, notice when you're traveling in the UK is in these ancient villages, uh, pretty much everyone has this big city center church. And on these big city center churches are towers, right? And the towers have bells, or some of the later ones, they have clocks on them. And so why is it that we have these, these time-telling towers in the center of thousands of towns you know, across Europe. Why is this? Why is it that the church became known to be this bearer of time? What is it about Christianity that time was important, that began to shape and influence the way that our culture views time, that we view time today? Like, it's not just church towers that had, were time tellers in the center of time, but even our calendar starts at the birth of Jesus. And so, in Christianity, time is very important. There's a significance to it. Um, so our sermon today on time, it's specifically, though, on how do we give our time well. And why do we give our time? Well, I want to say it's because we've been given time. And if you hear nothing else that I say this morning, I want this alone to stick. That Jesus said, to whom much has been given, much will be required. And time is something that you have been given. Not something that you've earned or deserved, but a gift. And so that when you can begin to see time as a gift, you will begin to live your life with the sort of intentionality that is characteristic of an exponential Christian. A Christian who lives out of their new identity. And so that's why we're talking about time this morning. Remember, uh, two weeks ago when I spoke, we started by setting out our identity in Christ, and it set the basis for this whole sermon series that we're in about the, the exponential Christian. And we looked at how what we've been told by the books that we read and the songs that we sing and the gurus, you know, of our time, right, has shortchanged us. That rather than looking outside of us for an identity, at our familiar and our, our cultural duties to define us, or inside of us, at our dreams and our duties to define us, that extraordinarily. Christianity says we don't look outside, we don't look inside, that our identity actually comes from above, that who you are is who you are before God, that you're an imago Dei, you're a human being made in the image of God, and that when you identify, that means when you place your stake you know, in Jesus instead of your, yourself, and in his sacrifice on the cross, his life, his death, and his resurrection, that it is credited to you. And so this marks the end of the insecurity and the burden of self-determination and the beginning of a freedom and a significance and a security that can only be found in Christ. And so it is when we see this that we see how our culture has shortchanged us on identity and that there is these exponential riches to us available in Christ. And so, now what I'm calling you to is to fully realize the implications of the riches that you have in Christ, right? That he has given you your time, your talents, and your treasure for him. So last week, Jeff preached on talents, and this week, I'll preach on time, and next week, Dwight will be preaching on our treasure, the, all these things that we give. But we give of our time, and we give of our time because, like I said, it's a gift, but that's a bit unusual, Right? Is that we really how we think about time? Listen, I think most of us think about time 
like this. And I'm going to summarize it in two words. All mine. So first we're going to look at the all. That the time you have is all you've got. And then second we're going to look at the mine. That the time you have is all yours. It's, you know, it's my time. But first we're going to start with the time. That the time you have is, is all you've got. And so did you know that the most recent statistics reveal that 100% of people will eventually die? Some of you knew I was going to say that. <laughs> um, and as we get older, we get this sense that, right, that life is, is short. And if, if the natural world is all there is, if naturalism is true, if we're just the co composed of atoms and molecules that make up our body, then there, there is nothing more. You're, you're not a spirit and a soul, they say. You're, you're just a body. And so there is nothing eternal about you, nothing transcendent about you. And all the time you have is the time between the day you're born and the day you die. And where does this leave us? And for some of us, this has left us feeling quite, quite meaningless, that, that nothing lasts. Um, you can think about Maybe you've heard of the atheist Albert Camus, and he wrote in his book, The Myth of Sisyphus, he's drawing on this ancient Greek myth, the guy who rolls the rock up the hill only to find it roll down again, the meaninglessness of life. Or a more modern example, Lincoln Park, right? Time is a valuable thing. Watch it fly by as the pendulum swings. Watch it count down to the end of the day. The clock ticks away like it's so unreal and on course. I tried so hard, I got so far, but in the end, it doesn't even matter. See, there's nothing new under the sun, is there, right? The biblical writer who wrote what was, we started with this morning also wrote this. Then I considered all my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. There was nothing new to be gained under the sun. I think Albert Camus would have been surprised to find this in the Bible. What's saying here? What's going on? The writer of this is saying that he had actually tried, if you look the full bit, he had tried knowledge, he had tried pleasure, he had tried work, and he'd found it all to be, to be vanity, to be striving after the wind. The Greek, or the Hebrew word here is hevel, which means, it means like vapor or breath. It's something you see for an instant, it's there, and then, and then it's gone. And, and I think for a lot of us, this is what we feel, right? Sometimes time and life, it can feel meaningless. But then we look about and we say no, right? No, we can't live this way. Uh, last week on the plane, I was, I was reading Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. And Frankl is, is a Jew, a psychiatrist who survived uh, the Holocaust. He survived the death camps of World War II. And he says in that book, like, certainly man cannot live for meaning. He observed that in the death camps, there were those, those in the death camps, those who had nothing to live for, those who had no transcendent meaning were actually the ones who died first. They were the first to, to lose hope under the pressure and actually physically die first. And so it's essential, he says, it's essential that life is meaningful. But if there's no meaning to be found in the universe, we must create our own. And so Frankel calls this meaning therapy or logotherapy. We have to forge meaning for ourselves. And so what do we find? Forge meaning for ourselves. Our culture is obsessed with work, right? We must produce. We must perform. We have to sign that next deal. We have to, to publish that next paper. And why? 
because we find our very meaning depends on it, because we have valued our worth by our productivity. And the whole time, right, the cosmic clock is it's ticking and it's ticking, and we become stressed because time is running out and we're not finished. There's always work to be done, and when there's always work to be done, you can never rest. Uh, last week in Scotland, I was in St. Andrews, and in St. Andrews, there's this beach there, and the beach is famous because it's where they filmed that scene in Chariots of Fire. <laughs> and in the movie Chariots of Fire, if you don't know it, there's these two Olympic runners, Eric Liddell and Harold Abrahams. And in it, you'll notice that Harold, he never smiles. He wins the gold medal, he doesn't smile. And they interview him, and he says this, when the gun goes off, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. And what's he saying when he says that? He says what we say when the time I have is all the time I've got, right? It might be 90 years, it might be 20 years, or it might be 10 seconds, but we're looking to justify our existence. We're looking to, to prove ourselves, to feel significant. And so we're rushed, and we're hurrying about, always running, always stressed. Think about this expression. How do we use this? I'm a very busy man, you know. When someone says that, they're, they're not asking for help in managing their schedule to, to relieve anxiety. No, no. It's a sort of statement of importance, right? Of, of value, of worth. I'm busy and I, I don't really have a lot of time for you, right? Or cell phones. Think about how we pull our cell phone out all the time. We're talking to a group of people and I'm, I'm so important that people need to contact me right now, <laughs> right? They need to be in touch with me. And so we stay busy in order that we might feel important, significant, that others might view us as important. And you see, this busybodiness, this workaholism, it helps us to create meaning. We want to think, I'm significant. Without me, the whole system wouldn't function, right? I'm needed. I'm needed. But again, what end? We're stressed. You know, we're busy. And so what happens you see, what happens when we view our time in the absence of God, in the absence of transcendence? This, stressed, anxious, busy. But now what happens? Imagine God in the picture, okay? So Luke records the story of when Jesus visits Mary and Martha. And Martha invites Jesus into the house. And her sister Mary, it says, is sitting sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's listening to his teaching. This is an expression to say she's listening to his teaching. Like Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Quite an extraordinary statement because she was, she was a woman and women wouldn't normally have been allowed to do that by religious teachers. But Jesus is showing her something unique here. But uh, Martha, on the other hand, she's busy. She's in the kitchen. She's cooking and cleaning serving food. And then she comes into the room and she asks, Master, don't you care that my sister has abandoned the serving in the kitchen to me? And then what does Jesus say? Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus here is saying, See, Martha, you're anxious. You're worried about your productivity, but Mary has chosen the essential thing that can't be taken away, the, the good portion. And you know, here, good portion can translate the main course. And what does he mean, Jesus, the main course, right? Well, there was food to be found in the kitchen, but time in the presence of Jesus was better food. The hungry soul searching for meaning will never be satisfied by busyness in the kitchen until it is satisfied by Jesus. He alone 
is our main course. He alone is the bread of life that can feed the hungry soul. And until our meaning is satisfied in him, until we rest in him, we will constantly be striving, feeling like we don't have enough time. And the busyness will never end. And so you see, if you believe that this life is all you have, then either the time you have is utterly meaningless and you have to work then to forge your meaning and then you end up feeling stressed like you don't have enough time. But there's this alternative available to us in Christianity. And so that's the first, that's the all. But what about the mine? You know, it's, it's that the time you have, it's all yours. It's, it's my time. Think about the story of the Good Samaritan. A Jewish man, he's been beaten, he's been thrown into a ditch. And then a few fellow religious Jews, they walk by and they see him there. And they look and they, they just look the other way, right? Because they don't want to take, take a risk. Maybe this man, maybe it's a trap, right? Maybe if we go and we help him, we'll, get, we'll also get beat up and thrown in the ditch, right? So it's a trap. So they just, maybe it's a trap, but they just don't want to get involved. I, I got places to go, I got people to see, right? They probably tell themselves that. But then a Samaritan passes by. This person is not a Jew. They're ethnically, religiously, culturally different. And what does he do? He has compassion. He risks his own life to give of his time, talent, and treasure to help this man. And so it's no accident. You'll actually find that this story is back-to-back -back with the story of Mary and Martha that I just told. And so one of the things that Jesus is telling us here is that we are busy with being lazy. We're busy with being lazy. So like the passerbys of that injured man, we don't want to get involved. The, the, we choose busyness over making the harder, the costlier choices, right? Sometimes we, we busy ourselves in order to avoid what God or who God has really put in front of us. And so we filled our schedule, but we do it on the premise that it's my time. But what's the problem with this? The problem with this is that you'll never go the extra mile. You'll never go the extra mile. Because love, has defined, it's defined as willing the good of the other at your own expense. But if time is seen as mine, if it's my time, then we'll never be able to love with our time. Because our time is only meant to serve our needs. And so for some of this, can, this can look like, like laziness or impatience, right? We get frustrated when we feel like others are wasting our, our, our precious time, right? Or it looked like we can even be in the service of others, right? We can be driven, though, in that by wanting to live up to their expectations, to, to look impressive, right? But in that case, well, then we're just serving others ultimately for our sake, right? Not really for theirs. And so I don't know how many times I've said this when I got, you know, tired or anxious and I just say, like, I don't have time for this, right? How often do we say that, right? What are we doing when we do that? Are we being busy? I just want to suggest, question, are we being busy being lazy, right? Thinking about time as mine, it's my time, right? And I want to spend it on something I no longer, I don't want to spend it on something I no longer view as beneficial to me and my time. And see, so this isn't showing sacrificial love. And when I, when I do this, I'm, I'm frankly, I'm being selfish. And so these are the problems we face as we try and manage our time. Time can feel like elusive and meaningless. It can make us feel stressed and overbusy, or we can waste it selfishly on ourselves. And so how do we escape this? How do we escape this? I want to say it's because we need a new view of time. 
I think our culture, somewhere, like deep down when they hear the truth, they actually know the truth in some senses. They know that time isn't this all-mine thing. One of the most famous movies of all time is the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And actually, probably the most famous quote, or one of the most famous quotes within that movie is when Gandalf says to Samwise Ganji, all you have to do is decide what to do with the time that is given you. Do you catch that? The time is given to you. It's not yours. It's providentially given to you by God for you to steward well. And so we need to start seeing time, I want to say, as it's revealed to us in Scripture. Let's look at this first. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time, because the days are evil. To explain the Christian view of time, I'm going to have to get a bit geeky. Um, but bear with me, because this is actually mind-bending. It's totally extraordinary, but we have to get geeky first. And so there are two ways that we think about time when we use the word time in English. We use the same word time, but in Greek they use two different words. And so the two different words are this. The first would be when we say something like, lunchtime is 11 a.m. So what time is lunch? Well, lunch is at 11 a.m. We're talking in terms of, of days, of seconds, and of hours. We're talking about time in the quantitative sense. And in Greek, the word used for this is chronos. But there's a second sense to time. Actually, for this, this first one, think about the stopwatch company, chronos, right? Days, seconds, hours. There's a second sense of time, and it's when we say, it's time for lunch. What time is lunch? It's time for lunch. Not a particular day, moment, hour, it's just now. Now is the opportune time to eat food. And this is the second way in which Greek um, has this word time. It's the kairos sense of time. And instead of being quantitative like the chronos, it's qualitative. And so it's this particular opportune moment. And it can be a short period or a long period of time. Think about this. It's break time. That's a short period of chronos, of minutes. Or it's harvest time. That could be months, right? So it, it's irrespective of the amount of actual finite line time that it's taking of uh, chronos time is this kairos sense of time. And with break time or with harvest time, if we don't harvest or if we don't take our break, the moment will pass us by, right? And so let's go back to this Ephesians 5 thing. When we read that we are to make the most of our time, this is in the kairos sense of time. So this, this is, it goes beyond just like the minutes and seconds sense of time. It's referring to making the most of a particular opportune moment in time that God has given us. And so we are to make the most of the particular opportune moment in time that God has given us. And making the most here is actually the word redeem. Redeem. See, our whole lives are to be lived out in worship of God, and this includes our time. And how are we worshiping God with our time? See, all the problems we've been looking at, the busyness, the stress, the anxiety, the, uh, well, what becomes workaholism, or on the other side, idleness, right? These are all worship problems. They all come from a heart that is turned in on itself as opposed to turned outwards to God and to his glory. And I want to say, I'm calling us to lay our schedules down on the altar of worship. 
to redeem the time, what it says here, to make the most of your time, that word redemption. But remember, redemption always has a cost. Redemption. What was the cost of redeeming the time? It was the hour. Now, you might be wondering, what do I mean by the hour? In the Gospel of John, it's thematically structured, and one of those themes is time. And if you read through John, you'll see again and again, it says, Jesus, the hour had not yet come. The hour had not yet come. He goes here, the hour had not yet come. He goes there, the hour had not yet come. And then it says, the hour has come to worship him in spirit and truth. The hour has come that the Son of Man must be glorified. What was that hour? That wasn't a chronos hour. There was a keros hour. There's a particular opportune moment in time. It says, truly, truly, I tell and say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies. So what was the cost for him to redeem our time? The grain of wheat had to fall into the ground and die. Jesus had to die to redeem our time. That was the extraordinary cost that Jesus had to pay to redeem our time. This is the hour that John is referring to. This is the Kairos moment, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And so what was the cost? Jesus' death. You see, Jesus left the eternal presence of the Father in heaven and took on our finite mortality and faced death so that we who were bound by death and mortality could attain the infinite presence of God in heaven. This is the exchange on the cross. And all of this was done for our stress, for our workaholism, for our idleness, the way that we have moved and used our time in a disordered relationship with God and those around us. And so what this disordering of relationship is what the Bible calls sin. But Jesus has redeemed us and he's redeemed the ways that we've sinned with our time and against others. And now, now with this gift of Jesus, we too can redeem our time. See, the gospel view of time is extraordinary. It's this mind-blowing reality that Jesus stepped into our time to proclaim the kingdom of God. He came to show us, you could say, in Kronos, the reality of Kairos. He came to show us in Kronos, the reality of Kairos. What do I mean by this? I want you to think for a second of another story. It's the vision, Jesus uh, of transfiguration. Um, the Christian author, uh, Mary Engel actually brings this out in her book. She's the one who wrote that book, A Wrinkle in Time. And it might even still be showing here in the cinema, I don't know. But it's not in this book, it's in a, a devotional sort of book she writes. But the idea is this. At the transfiguration, Jesus goes up onto the mountain, right, with Peter and James and John, and what happens? It said he's, he's transformed before them. He becomes, his body becomes glorious, it becomes white. And beside him, there are these dead people from the past. And they're talking about what? Things that will happen in the future. You see, what's happening, she says, when Jesus takes them up in the mountain in ordinary Kronos time, during the glory of the transfiguration, they were dwelling in Kairos time, right? So Jesus came to show in Kronos the reality of Kairos, to show finite time in or, sorry, to show the reality of eternal time in our finite time, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. That's how we can talk about the kingdom of God being now and not yet. Galatians 4.4 4 says that in the fullness of time, this is the chronos, he came. Jesus, God sent forth his son. And then in Corinthians, behold, now is the favorable time, the kairos. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So we see these ideas of time are being used by the New Testament writers in Scripture. So at the cross, we have this giant telescoping of time 
end this expansion of time in which on the cross we can see how people ask, how could Jesus' sacrifice in the cross apply across all time? It says here, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. It's when Jesus steps out of Kairos and into Kronos, right, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, that his sacrifice can apply past, present, and future. And this changes everything about how we view time. This is a mind-blowing concept, isn't it? So you say, what difference does that make in my life, right? How does this change the way that I spend time? And I want to look at some uh, four practical ways, and then I'll challenge you with two more things at the end. So first, consider your calling. Consider your calling. You have a new identity in Jesus Christ. That's why when someone becomes a new disciple of Jesus, the first thing we do is we baptize them. We baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And baptizing them in the name of the Father indicates that they're a son or a daughter of God. They're brought into the family of God. In the Son, that they're a servant. Jesus came uh, not to be served, but to serve. And in the Spirit, that like the Spirit has sent us, we are sent. We are missionaries. So all of us, in our new identity in Christ, we are family, and we are servants, and we are missionaries in his kingdom. And so how this works out, how this new identity in our life works out specifically is what we call our calling. You see, there are so many needs in the world, right? So many ways that you could serve, but you're not called to serve every need. Rather, God has given you time and talent and treasure to be able to meet specific needs. In fact, the gifts, the opportunities, and the abilities that God has given you Think about this. No one else has them. You are uniquely and you are purposely called by God, unlike anybody else on this planet. And so you might be wondering, well, then how can I know this? How can I know what my calling is? How can I know what it specifically is? Well, I want you to think about the ways that God has gifted you. Think about the time the treasure and the talents that God has given you, and then pray over them. Ask him to show you how you can use them for him, for a specific need, a specific and unique need that joins the time, talent, treasure you've given you, unlike anyone else, to something, right? And he could call you to love God and love people through your new identity, your specific calling in him. And by the way, when I say this, <clears throat> I don't want you to just be thinking, that God calls us to sort of like spiritual activities, right? Like praying and singing and uh, reading our Bible and becoming a pastor like Jordan. And <laughs> no, we're told to do all things for the glory of God. And so we need to break down this idea that there is, you know, secular work and sacred work or secular callings and sacred callings. No, all things for the glory of God. And so if God has called you to be a carpenter or a student or a nurse, do it to the glory of God. This is your act of worship. The second thing I would say is prioritize. You've probably heard the analogy that life is like a jar. And into that jar, you can place small rocks and big rocks. And if you place the small rocks First, the big rocks won't fit. But if you place in the big rocks, then the small rocks will fill the spaces and everything will fit in the jar. So how do we prioritize 
based on the roles that we have in life. How do we do this? Well, I want you to first take a moment to consider what are the roles that God has called you to. You might not be aware of all of them, but that's okay. What are the roles that God has called you to? So we prioritize based on these roles. I'll use myself as an example. Based on our new identity in Christ, we have been made sons or daughters of God. So that's my primary, that's my most important role. But I'm also a husband to Sandra, a father to a child I don't yet know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> a client services director at Visual Schedule Builder. Um, I was an engineer. I, uh, I'm an apprentice pastor at this church. I'm a friend to people who do and don't yet know Jesus, right? So these are all different roles that I have in my life. And the reality is, is that we can't do everything. We're not infinite. God is infinite and we are finite. And we can rest in him in that. But to be effective, we need to be operating only within the roles that God has called us that align with our identity, right? And so how do we prioritize based on these roles? Well, I think something practical here is <clears throat> usually the way that we schedule is we take the item that takes the most time and we put it into our schedule first, right? And then we try and fit all the other things that take less time around that. But I want to say, when we schedule with this biblical view of time, that no longer are the big rocks the things that take the most amount of time, right? But they're the, become the things that are the most important, the things that are kairos, you could almost say. And so the first priority in our schedule be, becomes that, Jordan, you are a son of God. And that means it's the most important priority in your schedule. And you don't put the big things, the other like things in first and then work around that. It's the other way around, right? And so that changes the way in which we think about our priorities as sons and daughters of God, doesn't it? The next thing I want to say is we, we let the spirit lead. We, we leave spirit flexibility. Um, so we build and we schedule around these roles. And so we, we, we take these proactive measures, but we want it also always in this, as we're proactive, to be spirit-led. Authentic spirit-led followers of Christ are not equated with people who, who make no plans, right? We can and even should, according to God's wisdom, make plans. But the difference is that we are not chained, we are not tied to our schedules, right? We can listen and actually plan and give ourselves time for the Spirit to break in and change our plans, right? To, to change our plans for his Kairos eternal calendar, which always trumps over our finite Kronos calendar, right? You say something like that. So we can plan and leave space inside our schedule for Spirit-led change. And the final thing I'd say in stewarding our time is that we can live intentional instead of living additional and so this is, this is the idea that we live out the rhythms of life, right? We all have these different things that we do that just make up the normal routine of our life. We always um, go grocery shopping, right? We always commute to work. We always eat probably three or more meals a day. We always exercise. We always 
go to work, like our work itself. Like, so we all, we all have these rhythms to our lives, and some of them are daily, and some of them are weekly, and some of them are yearly, and so on. And so when I'm calling you um, to be intentional with your schedule, I'm not saying to be additional necessarily with your schedule, unless God calls you to that. So you think, oh, how can I fit more time, more things into my schedule? Well, actually, God wants you to think intentionally about the things you already have in your schedule. Um, and so uh, one example would be, I remember I was working up north in the work camp, and I would be like, man, I just wish I had time after work to like, talk to my friends about these really important things I wanted to discuss with them about Jesus. And then um, there were times when I thought, like, this will just never happen, and I try and make time, and they're always too tired in the evenings to like, hang out and like, go drive off, and there would be places that we could go and like, hike and stuff around the, the work site. And there just wasn't a lot of opportunity for that. So I prayed to ask God to help me be intentional um, in sharing with them. And I actually found that there was a remarkable correspondence. And I'm thinking of this kind of like retrospectively. Between the times that I prayed, God, help me to have a conversation today. When I was intentional, those conversations happened. And I didn't have to go off after work and do that extra hike or whatever it was when we'd already worked a 12 or 14-hour shift. It was when we were just sitting at our desks talking about life. It was when we were eating lunch together in the cafeteria. These were the very normal times that we could be intentional, that God could lead me to be intentional uh, with in my time. And so that's the sort of thing that we're, we're called to, to live intentionally with how we use our time. But now I want to end with some challenges. Well, if Jesus is Savior of your time, sorry, if Jesus is Lord of your time, you have enough time. That means you have enough time. If Jesus is Lord of your time, that means you have enough time. Go ahead and go back. Yeah, okay. So the, the challenge I would, the, of two challenges, I'll give this one first. If Jesus is Savior of your time, that means your free time isn't free. Your free time isn't free. That is a mind-expanding concept right there because we talk about free time all the time. And I think about how I treat the time that I consider to be free, right? I think about the hours that I wasted on YouTube, even some yesterday, right? And it, you, you can binge watch, right? Like we binge watch TV shows and all these things. And the question is not whether or not it's right or wrong to be watching YouTube. The question is, does this align with the calling that God has given me, right? And if it doesn't align with the calling God has given me, we need to cut it out. But I think about these times that we, I've wasted my time, and there's a certain amount of regret, right, that can come in that we'd be like, oh, man, I just wasted that, and I wish I could go back and redeem it. But it has been redeemed. That's what I want to say. It's been redeemed by Jesus' work on the cross. This is the riches of the gospel. Remember, Jesus taught us that the man who put his hand to the plow is not fit for the kingdom of God. It's like saying the man who puts his hand to the cockpit controller is not fit to fly the plane, right? Christ is behind you. Christ is behind you. He's redeemed your past. You can let it go. You, can, you don't need to continue to wallow in your past because when you continue to wallow in the past, you continue to nail Jesus to the cross. But he has redeemed your past, and you no longer need to prove yourself. You've been proved, and you have been justified by faith. Now you can walk in it. So we no longer need to live in shame about the ways that we have wasted our time. And Christ is also before us. 
Christ behind us, Christ before us. This means that our future has also been redeemed. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to be stressed about what is ahead of us. We don't have to worry about tomorrow because we don't know what tomorrow will bring, right? Jesus keeps all of our planning in check, right? He is, he is Lord. He is sovereign over our time. It's a reminder that time is sovereign. Time is in God's hands. And so if Jesus is Savior of your time, that means that your free time isn't free. But you don't need to walk in regret about that. You don't need to walk in shame about that. You don't need to walk in guilt about that. Because Jesus has redeemed your time and he has set you free. Past, present, and future. Kairos. It is complete. And if Jesus is Lord of your time, you have enough time. It means you have enough time. So we say things like, I don't have enough time to get this thing done, right? We get anxious, we get stressed, oh, I just don't have enough time to get this thing done. But the reality is, in Christ, in Christ, you have exactly, you have exactly enough time, right? Um, last week, I was talking to a friend in, in St. Andrews, and he was a common friend with Nabil Qureshi, who wrote the book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And Nabil became quite prolific after he um, was an Ahmadi Muslim and he uh, converted to Christianity. Um, and his book became a New York Times bestseller. And a lot of Christians would look at the work Nabil was doing and say, wow, this man is you know, mightily used by God. But Nabil said to my friend David a couple years ago, interestingly, he said, David, I, I just sense this so strongly that God has already done what he wanted to do in my life. And then shortly after that, he was diagnosed with cancer. Now, what are we to make of this? What are we to make of this brilliant young evangelist that God has taken away? People ask that, right? Why would God take him away? His work was, the idea, his work was complete, right? We can trust God that he is sovereign, right? That in his love, Nabil had finished his course for God. And God didn't Nabil, need Nabil to carry out his purpose anymore. In his sovereign goodness, he's raising up others in his stead. And so we can trust that God is sovereign. For the things that God has called you to do in life, he has given you exactly enough time to do those things. Because what are we saying? What are we saying when we say, God didn't give me enough time, right? We're saying, in a sense, that God is, he's insufficient. He's stingy, right? You didn't give me enough. You're saying, God, I don't trust you. You didn't give me enough time to accomplish what I need to accomplish. Your gift wasn't sufficient to me. But God doesn't call us to accomplish things that we don't have enough time to do, right? God doesn't call us to accomplish things we don't have enough time to do. If we stewarded our time, God has given us exactly enough time to do the things that he has called us to do. And so if Jesus is Lord of your time, you have exactly enough time. And if Jesus is, is Savior of your time, your free time, it isn't free. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you redeem our time. Thank you that we don't have to be stressed, we don't have to be anxious about the future. Because in a sense, you have stepped into the future. You have broken into our chronos reality by your inbreaking eternal spirit of God and set us free. And we don't have to be worried about our past. We don't have to be wallowing in shame and guilt because you have redeemed the ways that we have wasted our past time, that you have set us free. And now like you have redeemed our time, we can redeem our time for you.
And so help us to use our time well. Help us not to waste our time, but to offer it up as the gift that it is. It is all yours, God. Your time is a gift. Help me to give it back to you as an act of worship. You are worthy of my time. You are worthy alone, and it is in your hands. And so we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we'll respond in worship. And we respond to, through singing, singing, giving thanks for what God has done for us, allowing the truth of the words speak to our hearts and turn us from being that person who is inwardly oriented to someone who is outwardly oriented, who can be generous with their time. And we respond through taking the bread and breaking it and dipping it in the wine, reminding us that when we were hungry, that Jesus fed our hungry souls, that he is the only good portion that can satisfy us. And until we are satisfied in him, we will have no rest in our anxious souls. And if you are struggling with how you have spent your time, if you are struggling with the shame or guilt associated with wasting your time, I'm gonna be on the side and there'll be some of the others here on the side and we wanna pray with you. We want to speak truth over you that Jesus, he has redeemed your time. He has broken into our reality and changed everything. He's turned this whole world upside down. And the, this mind-bending concept can be grasped and it can be lived out as followers of Jesus Christ, as servants on mission for him.